I'm glad to see and will be happy to report uh, when I go elsewhere that the spirits of Brother Jerry Hunt and Brother Jerry Hunt are alive and well at Fellowship Church as evidenced by that song service. More importantly, the spirit of Jesus is alive and well and his candlestick burns brightly here and I'm very thankful for that. I want to uh, turn to a book of the Old Testament which is somewhat unusual in that there are no prophets in this book and there are no priests in this book. And you might be thinking, well, I'm going to the book of Job, but that's not quite right because the book I want to go to tonight, there's no God in the book either. I've exaggerated slightly. There is God in this book, but his name is not found in the book of Esther. So no prophet, no priest, and no God. But you know, when we don't see God, it doesn't mean he's not there. It means we need to look a little more carefully. And so I pray that God will enable us to do that this evening as we look at the book of Esther. I'd like to bow one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege to be gathered with your saints in your house, the pillar and ground of truth, your truth, your house, your people. And I pray, Father that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word and that you would open your word to our hearts and minds. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Esther has a famous king in it. And now that I'm entering the granddad stage of life, which, by the way, if I'd realized how much fun being a granddad was, I might have skipped the dad phase of life altogether. And gone straight to grandparenting, but um, just kidding, kids. Um, the but it is it is a lot of fun. But uh, I'm going to pass along a tip for parents of young children: when you're doing Bible study, family worship, reading, instruction with your children at home, you know you've got to bring the Word of God to bear on on that instruction because that's the only tool that is fully profitable in every area of life and needful even from a young age. But you also have to draw the children into the material, the content that you're teaching. And I very fondly remember teaching uh, the book of Esther to my children because um, their eyes would tend to glaze over in some of the long passages. And, uh, and so I had to, had to keep their attention. So in order to, and, and some of the names were hard to pronounce, including this king's name. And so the trick I came up with, and you can borrow it free of charge, is whenever we would get to the name of this king, well, let me just tell you first, the Jewish tradition of the Feast of Purim involves uh, reading the book aloud, and every time you hear the name Haman, we will get to in a minute, he's a character in this book, he's a bad guy. Every time you get to the name Haman, all the kids boo and hiss and stomp their feet and make noises like that. Well, um, we, we decided as we were reading through the book of Esther, every time we would get to the name of this king, I would jump up, look at the children, and say, who has my weirus? And they would all, in unison, scream out at the top of their lungs, Ahasuerus. And it also helped them learn how to pronounce the name. So, this is uh, King Ahasuerus. When King Ahasuerus is reigning here in the days of the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian Empire, in the city of uh, Shushan, or Susa, uh, where the, the palace, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, lay, uh, and let's, again, rewind just a little bit here. This is in the period of the captivity of God's people Judah. 
This is following the Assyrian conquest of the northern tribes of Israel and then following the Babylonian conquest of the southern tribes of Judah. And then the Medes and Persians, the Babylonians sweep in and clean out the Assyrians. Then the Medes and Persians sweep in and clean out the Babylonians. And so these are the big boys in the block now. The Persians are the ones in charge. And it even says in the very first verse that this is the king Ahasuerus who reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over 107 and 20 provinces. A vast, a vastly extensive empire that covered the entirety of the Middle East and even into what we would call South Asia today. So this mighty empire prided itself on being the best of those great empires. The Assyrians had this going for them. They were brutal and heartless. And that sometimes helps on a battlefield. And uh, they, their tactic was they built up such a, rep, a reputation of horrific brutality that they would come to a city and besiege the city and send messengers to the city that says, we're going to kill you, we're going to destroy your city, we're going to gouge your eyes out, we're going to stick your heads on the top of tall poles outside the city, and if you surrender, we might still do that to you. And so just in absolute terror, they subjugated the entire uh, domain of their empire, including those, uh, uh, those uh, rebellious northern tribes of Israel, uh, on whom God brought judgment through the hands of such despicable people as the Assyrians. Uh, they wouldn't have even considered themselves sophisticated, these Assyrians. The Babylonians finally come, come on the scene, and of course they come from an ancient city that goes all the way back to uh, the resettlement of the earth after the flood of Noah, the Tower of Babel or Babel, is uh, the seat of the Babylonian Empire. Um, and uh, and, and they, they pride themselves on being able to be equally militarily ferocious as the Assyrians, but also being able to enjoy the finer things of life, like getting drunk out of cups of gold stolen from God's temple and things like that. They, uh, they built the hanging towers of the hanging gardens of Babylon. They built, you know, uh, glorious monuments of gold and silver and, and just, just reveled in their glory. You remember uh, this from the testimony of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, for example, in, in the book of Daniel. Is not, uh, is not all this what, that I, even I, have built. And he was just so proud of himself and, and his great glory and grandeur. So maybe a step up from the Assyrians and they're just... Uh, animalistic brutality, but still a pretty fierce empire with uh, names. I can't remember if it was John Gill or Matthew Henry, some commentator I read. I'm sorry, Brother Brady, I promised I wouldn't quote any names of uh, preachers up here in the pulpit tonight, but they're old and dead and gone, so they won't get the big head. So, um, but uh, one of these old commentators said, uh, said it was, uh, it was, it was that when they heard the names of the Babylonian generals and princes on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, these were names the like of which had never been heard in this city before. And then my modern twist on that is it's basically like taking a handful of silverware and dropping it down the garbage disposal of your kitchen sink. That's, uh, so these, these Babylonians, for all their sophistication, were still uh, a, a brutalistic, domineering people. Then the Persians and the Medes, this uh, conjoined empire from two peoples, comes together in, in a whole uh, study and sermon in and of itself. The way that they conquered the city of Babylon is extraordinary and a great lesson, a very practical lesson in our own lives. This great mighty city ruled by Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, 
was having that feast with the the uh, the the uh, silverware, the goldware of the temple that night, and the Medes and the Persians sneaked up on the city and found one gate, one small gate, not even a gate you would walk through, but a gate that protected the city from uh, while while protecting its source of of water from the river Euphrates. It it uh, the the bars of the gate went down through, so nobody could sneak through that way. The gate was there precisely to keep people from sneaking through, and yet that is precisely how they sneaked through, because some guard whose job it was to turn the key on the lock that night forgot to turn the key on the lock. Somebody said he might have been bribed. I don't know. I wasn't there, but it, however it happened, the key, the lock wasn't there, and the the the, the Persian army dammed up the river just a few hundred yards north of the city and walked through the open gate and marched into the city unopposed. And when the watchmen on the walls of Babylon finally realized that the enemy were inside the city and they ran to the palace to give the alert, ring the alarm, sound the, you know, the bell, and tell everybody to man the battle stations, the Persians were so swift that they got to the palace before the guards did, bringing the message, the Persians are coming. And so just as God had written with his invisible hand on the wall of Belshazzar's uh, feasting room, many, many tickle you farsen. Uh, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians that very same night. The Medes and the Persians walked in and took the city. How's that relevant to you and me? Where are the little gates in your life? Where are the gates, the, the areas that you think, you know, we got that one covered. I took care of that sin a long time ago. I don't have a blind spot there anymore. I've put a lock in that, a key in that lock. It's all good. Go back and check them again. Go back and make sure you don't have any little eye gates, ear gates, thought gates, other avenues through which Satan can as stealthily creep into your life as the Medes and Persians crept into Babylon that night. But now we have the greatest of these three empires. The Assyrians supplanted by the Babylonians. The Babylonians, Chaldeans supplanted by the Medes and Persians. The Medes and Persians, that's a whole other fascinating study. Cyrus named by God, by name, in the words of prophecy of Isaiah hundreds of years beforehand, is ruling over this newly established empire after Belshazzar has been killed, deposed, and the whole Babylonian you know, infrastructure has been kicked out. He's in charge. And, and the Jewish scribes approach King Cyrus with trembling knees because he's a scary king who just wiped out an empire, but also with the confidence that they've just been reading the, their book, the law of God, the prophecies of God, and they happen to notice that the name of this king is in this book. And so they bring the book before the king, and they say, we thought you might be interested in this, sir. And he says, what is it? Don't waste my time. And, and they, they come up and they open the scroll up before him and they point and he sees his own name in there and God saying, generations in advance, King Cyrus is going to return my people to their homeland, to Jerusalem. And King Cyrus looks at that and says, well, if there's a God smart enough to know my name generations before I even exist and come to the throne... He must be right, so you guys go back and, and, and rebuild the, the, the city. And so under the reign of Cyrus and then later Darius uh, and under several exoduses, first under Zerubbabel and Ezra and then later Nehemiah, um, these, uh, the, 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 the scattered Jews began to return to their homeland by the tens of thousands and to rebuild the walls, the city, and the temple of Jerusalem. All of it fascinating history, but all of it also uh, 
events unfolding in which you can clearly see the hand of God. And God is named. I mean, Nehemiah, was when, when he was caught off guard uh, by, by the king and, and he said, what's wrong with you? He was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah said, I prayed to the Lord and I answered the king. He, the Lord is prominent in the book of Nehemiah uh, because Nehemiah depends on him for every aspect of that job, of that great work of rebuilding the wall from the beginning, getting permission, getting supplies, getting a commandment from the king to go back and rebuild, getting protection from their enemies, getting the wisdom about how to go about removing the rubble and, and reestablishing the wall and, and the great city of Jerusalem. So you see the work of God and you see the name of God prominently in these books But finally, several decades later, we have another Persian king, Ahasuerus, ruling over these Jews in another city, not Babylon, where they have been left behind from the dispersion of the Jewish nation and where the traces of the witness of God seem to have been largely erased. Again, I tell you, we don't see a prophet. In here, we don't see a priest in here. We don't see much evidence of habitual worship in here. There is a season of fasting. There are some heartfelt prayers that go up, but they don't say who they're praying to. We know it's Jehovah God because we see His hand at work. But in this this uh, pagan city ruled by a pagan king, we see some of the most remarkable events and demonstrations of God's providence unfold. So it starts with Ahasuerus throwing a party for his nobles from all these 127 provinces. He brings them all into the city of Shushan. He throws a week-long feast for them. At the same time he's doing this, his beautiful wife, the queen Vashti, throws a week-long feast in the ladies' palace for all the the, the plus ones of the men who are in the, in the, the main palace with King Ahasuerus. And um, again, I told you the Persians were a law and order type of people, didn't I? They, they were even more sophisticated than the Babylonians. They, they, um, they didn't wear as much eyeshadow. Their beards weren't quite as gnarly. And, uh, and they, were, they, were, they were quite proud of their accomplishments at being able to wipe off the, the, the remnants of the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires. And one of, we might even say today, one of the, one of the features of the Persian Empire that was so highly respected and regarded was that they purported to be a nation of laws rather than a nation of men. Now, men have to implement those laws, unfortunately, and we see in this book and throughout all history, and may I say in Washington, D.C. today, that even in a nation that purports to be under the rule of law, there are still men who influence and administer that law in ways that are sometimes contrary to its clear intent. But in this, in this land, they, the, the, law, the, the principle of the rule of law is so highly regarded that when the highest authority in the land, the king, makes a law and embosses it with his royal signet on his ring, it becomes so binding that even the king himself cannot undo that law. So at least in theory, this is a land where the law is above even the king. The king can make any law he wants to, but one thing he can't do is undo a law he's already made or a previous king has made. So here he is uh, making merry, celebrating, you know, in the way that was undoubtedly most generous spirited 
Uh, he said he gave plenty of wine for everybody to drink, but he didn't make anybody drink too much, but it seems like they did anyway. And they're all just having this great big celebration and party. And he's telling them what a great job they've done this year and what a good fiscal year they've had and how the tax revenues are up and the corn is up and the wine is up and the wheat is up and the camels seem to be doing fine. And, and you guys have done a great job. It reminds me of the big old grizzly bear sergeant in the cartoon movie Hoodwinked, who at the conclusion of the crime says, this was a group effort spearheaded by myself. And, um, and so Ahasuerus, you know, spreads the glory around and then pats himself on the back really hard and says, uh, this has been a great time. And he's so much moved by the spirit. This is a lowercase spirit. He's so moved by the spirit that he says, you know what? This is the time to celebrate my accomplishments even more. I'm going to call the most beautiful woman in the land, my wife, to come over here and parade her beauty before these men so they can all say, wow, he's got everything. So he sends one of his chamberlains to collect the, king, the queen from the party she's busy hosting. I don't even have to tell you how this is going to go. I, can, I know exactly what it would be like if my wife is busy hosting a group of ladies at our church and I send in a messenger to say, hey, uh, Andrew wants you to come outside and show everybody how pretty you are. Uh, it's... Uh, it's not hard to predict how this is going to go, and you're exactly right. That's how it goes. So Vashti refuses the commandment of the king. The chamberlain comes back empty-handed, and the king pitches a fit. This is one of the problems with being a king. There's nobody who will tell you no. And so you get out of the habit pretty early in your reign of being told no, and you forget how much it stings when you are told no and how to handle it well. So, so the king reacts badly to this, calls together all of his counselors and wise men because it's the Medes and the Persians and this is the way they do business. They consult wise men to make sure they're doing the right thing. The problem is who pays these wise men? The king pays these wise men. And so when he draws them in and says, what are we going to do to this queen? You're a wise man. You're on the king's payroll. I think you get the flow of where this is going. You know that the right advice to give at this moment is not how about a box of chocolate and a bouquet of roses? That's not what the king is wanting to hear. He says, what are we going to do to this queen? And they say, this is not just a problem for you, king. This is a problem that's going to spread through the whole empire. Women everywhere are going to be rising up in rebellion against their husbands. Husbands are going to lose control over their households, their families. Cats and dogs are going to move in together. Everything is going to go wrong with the world if you let this stand. And so they said, you should depose her from being queen and find you a new queen. Put her in her place and put the whole empire in its place. And tell everybody in the empire, this is how a man rules his house. Now I'm going to tell you in complete sincerity, this is not me joking, this is me speaking to you from my heart, that I have been this king. I have been this husband. I have been the husband who doesn't like to be disrespected. And at the slightest hint of disrespect, my rage can boil over just as much as King Ahasuerus. The problem is I didn't have any armies to carry out my edicts. But we're trying to build an army. Nine kids is a start. But the problem is they listen to their mom as much as they listen to me. So, uh, so, so it, it, this is a problem, men. And I, I want to confess to you that early in my husbanding and fathering and pastoring, I have actually read this chapter of Esther and thought, well, at least the king got this right. And I'm downright embarrassed to admit that to you today. This is not a good king, and this was not a good decision. This is no way to treat your wife. This is no way to treat your empire. This is no way to be as a man in your heart and in your mind. 
A man who can't control his own spirit, Proverbs says, is like a city that's broken down and without walls. And, and, and this man might have even, let's suppose, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, that he was uh, full of, of joy and love in his heart when he thought the best thing he could do is have his wife show off her beauty. But when he got the clear inclination that she was not on board with this idea, he should have had a second thought about that. He should have responded differently to the situation than by pounding her into the ground, humiliating her, removing her, the crown from her head and her from her office, and basically banishing her from his presence. And even though the word of God has a lot to say about the distinct roles of men and women in the church and the distinct roles of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers in the home, the word of God, and I want you all to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I haven't found the place in the word of God where it tells husbands to go get their wives in line. What it does do is it speaks to the wives and it says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands in the Lord as is right. And guess what it tells the husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So there are commands given to wives and commands given to husbands, but the husband's job is not to make sure the wife is following her commands from God, and the wife's job is not to make sure the husband's following his commands from God. And all you husbands and wives right now who are very carefully studying your shoes and hoping that your spouse doesn't nudge you at this moment, I want you to remind yourself, not each other, remind yourself that it is your job before God to do what God told you to do. And there have been many, many wives who said, oh, he'd be a lot easier to submit to if he loved me. And guess what? That's true. It would be a lot easier. But guess what else? God didn't put a contingency clause in there. Even, uh, you know, we have examples in Scripture of, 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 of godly women submitting themselves to ungodly men, like uh, wretched old Nabal and, 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 and these Abigail submitting herself to Nabal. And, and you see these, these situations where a godly woman is doing the best she can in a, an ungodly marriage, and she honors God and actually helps her case more doing that, doing honoring God the best she can in her circumstances, than by preaching to him every day and trying to straighten out her husband and say, if only I had a right kind of husband, then I'd have the right kind of life. And by the same token, there's a lot of husbands who say, well, if my wife would ever listen to me, it'd be a lot easier to love her. Well, guess what? That's also true. But guess what else? God didn't put that caveat in there either. He didn't say, love your wives when they're lovable. In fact, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And when did Christ love the church? Romans chapter 5 tells us it's when we were ungodly. It's when we were yet sinners. It's when we were rebels against God, when we were dead in trespasses and sins. You're talking about loving some unlovable people. We, the bride of Christ, were loved with an everlasting love that began when we were quite unlovable. And I have to think today that if Christ were not divine, there would still be days he would think they're still not very lovable now. So you and I are, are still beset with flaws. You husbands and wives are beset with flaws. And it is our calling before God to honor him by honoring his word and taking seriously what God has commanded us to do. That's exactly what J Jesus told his disciples in the last chapter of the book of John when he was giving instructions to Peter about what to do in a somewhat humiliating way for Peter. And then uh, they looked around and said, well, what about this guy over here, John? And he said, what if I tell him to do nothing until I come back? What if I just tell him to tarry till I return? 
That's nothing to you. Your job is to do what I told you to do. So we have an example right off the bat of a bad king and a bad husband. There's also another bad character in this book. He's a bad judge. And spoiler alert, they're all three the same guy. They're all three King Ahasuerus. So he, he holds this beauty pageant, uh, again, at the advice of his wise men who are on a roll here, uh, giving him advice that's making him happy, even though it's terrible advice and terrible decisions. So he uh, interviews all the most uh, beautiful virgins in the land and, um, and, and brings them into his palace and uh, decides he's going to pick one of them to be the new wife, the new queen. And Esther is a, um, a young Jewish lady, the niece of a man named Mordecai, who's a faithful old Jew in this Persian city of Shushan. And uh, Esther was an orphan, and so Mordecai brought her up as his own daughter. And when the, the call came, and this was a draft, by the way, not there's no indication that they applied for these roles like beauty pageants today. Uh, they went and grabbed these women and said, hey, the king wants to see you. And Mordecai counseled Esther on how to handle herself in this situation. And the second chapter of Esther tells us that Esther, while she demonstrates some qualities that are certainly superior to Vashti's strategy of how to be a good wife, she is a submissive woman. Esther obeys the command of Mordecai, it says in, in uh, the latter verses of Esther chapter 20. She, she respects this father figure, this, this, uh, this uncle who's, who's raised her up from, from childhood, and, and she, perhaps with some trepidation and doubt and uncertainty in her mind, takes his advice seriously, takes his commandments seriously, and, and obeys the commands of her, uh, her, her father figure, her authority, and, 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 and thereby is placed into a unique position where God is going to do something incredible through such, such twists of intrigue as would outdo any uh, adventure or spy novel written today. You've got a Jewish woman living in the palace of a king who doesn't even know who the Jews are. Nobody knows she's a Jew because she obeyed the commandment of Mordecai that she should not reveal or should not show her kindred nor her people. Um, this was not a city where, like Babylon, where uh, good Jewish men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had you know, risen to prominence and, and displayed a character and a reliability that, that elevated the esteem of the Jewish people in the eyes of their rulers. No, this seems to be a city where the Jews were essentially unknown. They were just another immigrant population inhabiting literally the streets of the city. Mordecai sat every day by the gate of the palace. Um, so, so in this, in this circumstance, Esther, through God's providence is brought into the, the palace of the king. She finds favor in his sight. He appoints her to be the queen. And, uh, and even there she's trusting God. They've got like in today's dollars, millions of dollars of perfumes, makeups, and beauty stylists at their disposal in the, uh, what they call the house of the women. And it says uh, when it was time for her and when it was time for you to go before the king, you could ask for anything you wanted and they would give you all the most expensive makeups and perfumes and everything else. And it said she didn't ask for anything except what was provided to her. So she just goes in, natural beauty, natural character, hopefully some supernatural character we see here as well. And, and the king 
recognize, sees favor, if she finds favor in his sight, he brings her into his palace as the queen. And, um, and then in, in, a, in a remarkable stroke of what can only be the providence of God, even though God's name is not mentioned here, in the last three verses of Esther chapter 2, while Mordecai is sitting in the gate of the palace, two of the king's chamberlains, those you know, administrative personnel that run and do the king's business, they are, they are crafting a plot to overthrow the king, and Mordecai finds out about it, sends a message to Esther, who lets the king know and attaches Mordecai's name to this warning, and the king sends his inspectors to fi- figure out the truth of the situation. They find that indeed a plot against the king was being hatched, and they condemned those men to death and hanged them on a tree. And they wrote it down in the book of the Chronicles before the king. That turns out to be important, the last words of chapter 23. Those are the words you usually skip over in your Bible reading. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. But it was written down in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Persia. And then the book was put on a shelf. And then meanwhile, we're introduced to a new character in the third chapter. This is the one I told you that... Uh, the Jewish custom uh, loves to celebrate by booing and hissing every uh, feast time, annual feast time of the Purim celebration. This man is named Haman. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 tells us he's the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which is another Canaanite tribe. So, you know, not quite cousins, but, you know, neighbors to the Jews. And, uh, and another kingdom, like all the kingdoms around, that had been conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. And so now this man is, is an ambitious, power-hungry, um, crafty, manipulative guy. The kind of guy who, again, will get along just great in Washington, D.C. Or maybe Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know how your politics in Georgia are these days. But um, he, he, is, uh, he knows all the right parties to go to. He makes sure he gets invited to all the right ones. He makes sure to invite all the right people to his affairs. And, and in the end, he gets such notice that he begins to be promoted. And chapter 3, verse 1 tells us the king Ahasuerus did promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. An ambitious, power-hungry man has just hit the jackpot. And he's so excited about it, he can't stop bragging about it to his family. He can't stop taking himself on parades around the city. And on his parades, as he goes out the gate of the palace, he sees one fellow there who, when the trumpets blow and the, the criers cry out, bow down before Haman, the really important middle management guy, and, and, and all these folks you know, who know which side their bread is buttered on, they all bow down and do obeisance to this underling that's marching by on his horse, and, um, and, but, but except for one guy. Mordecai sits there, and you know, he just doesn't. He doesn't bow down. And we don't have the exact details of how the story unfolds, but it becomes clear that this is the first time that Mordecai reveals that he is a Jew. And I have to think, based on his advice, his commandments to Esther, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, that this probably was revealed when they dragged him to his feet and said, hey, you scum of the earth beggar by the king's gate, you get down and bow when this man Haman walks by. And he said, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't. Why can't you? Of course you can't. I can't because I'm a Jew. We worship the one true and living God. And his commandment says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm not going to bow down as much as I might wish to in my flesh, as much as I would love to avoid a beating or getting imprisoned or getting in trouble with you in some way, as much as I'd love to go along to get along, there are some lines I can't cross. 
And again, I want to ask you saints here tonight. Do you have in your mind clear what the lines are that you won't cross? Rather than asking like young people often do, I certainly have. Is this okay? Is it okay if I do this? I know it's not advisable. I know it's not what my parents have raised me. It's not, I know it's not quite what I've been hearing in church on Sunday. But is it okay? Instead of asking, is it okay? Ask yourself, is this right? Does this honor God? You know, you could be like the young lady who was raised with those principles and, 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 and believed them in her heart and, uh, and, and just wasn't, there were some things she wasn't going to do. And she got set up on a blind date, a uh, double date, and, uh, and they pulled up outside some CD bar in the worst part of town. And, and the uh, couple in the front seat jumps out to go in and the guy in the back seat jumps out and opens the door for her and says, let's go in. And, oh, no, I'm sorry. I got to mess up the story. That's the worst when you mess up the story. The guy in the front seat opens the door for the back seat. And, and the girl in the back seat says, I'm sorry, I can't go in there. There's someone with me who wouldn't be comfortable. And the guy in the back seat puts his hand on her shoulder and says, oh, honey, it's okay. I don't mind a bit. And she says, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is with me, and there's some things I'm not going to do. There's some lines I'm not going to cross. Well, well, here was a line Mordecai was not going to cross. He was not going to bow down before man and worship man in the way that only God is to be worshiped. Which you'd think Mordecai, Mordecai, who's had a pretty good year, he's risen to the top of his, uh, you know, his goals and aspirations list. He's achieved everything he wanted to achieve. He's this powerful, influential, wealthy man now. You'd think he would just kind of, you know, scrape the mud off his boot and go on. But no, he is infuriated by this rascal, this wretch who won't bow down to him. And so he goes home, tells his family how what a wonderful uh, life he has, except for the thorn in his side, this one man who just absolutely won't bow down to him. And then he goes to the king in chapter 3 with a plot to unwind not just the life of Mordecai, but because Mordecai said, I can't do this because I'm a Jew, Haman says, we're going to destroy the entire Jewish people. Because he told us he can't do this because he's a Jew, which means other Jews might act the same way. And we can't have people in this empire who don't know how to respect authority. So following the example of Ahasuerus' reckless edict in the first chapter against Queen Vashti and all the women of the land, Haman goes in before the king and says, there's a people I've discovered in your empire. You've ruled 127 provinces. You've got all kinds of people under you. There's a people we've never heard of before, but they're trouble. They don't respect the laws of men. They only respect the laws of their God. And uh, the king, too busy to be bothered, very unwisely and foolishly, takes the signet ring off his finger, hands it to Haman, and says, go make a law that takes care of this. So Haman passes a law. Oh, and by the way, as he's fuming and stewing in his juices, sitting at his gold-plated coffee table in his big leather wingback chair, he's rolling a die on the table. And if tradition is accurate, it's kind of like our six-sided die today, you know, like you play dice in, in kids' games with. But it has a little handle on one end. You kind of spin it like a top. It spins around, then it falls over, and it shows, you know, a picture or a number or something on it. And Haman is just sitting there, like, playing with his fidget spinner and just, just fuming and steaming and being eaten up with, with fury. And it lands on the number 12 and the number 13. And he says, we are going to... Uh, pass a law that says on the 12th month of the Jewish calendar, the month Adar, on the 13th day of the 12th month, everywhere in the empire, not just right here in Shushan, but everywhere in the empire, good Persian citizens are going to rise up 
violently against their Jewish neighbors, beat them into the ground, destroy the men, women, and children, and take everything they've got. And then he seals it with the, with the king's signet ring. He makes it the unalterable law of the Medes and the Persians. Well, this is terrible news. And Esther gets wind of something going on as she's in the women's palace. And, and she sends a messenger to, to inquire of Mordecai and find out what's going on. And Mordecai sends back to her this uh, message that it's some really bad news and their people are threatened and in peril of their very lives. And he tells her in the end of chapter 4, Esther, God, I'm just going to read you these exact words. It's so powerful. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, man makes plans, but God directs our steps. And he says, Esther, of all the places in the earth, and of all the years in history, in the calendar, and of all the days in this year, this is this day, this month, this year, in this city, and you are wearing the queen's crown. Do you think that was by accident? And friends, you may not be wearing a crown right now. Of course, the Lord's made us kings and priests with him. But you may not be wearing a visible crown. But I want you to realize, who knoweth but that thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Don't spend your leisure hours wishing for years past or years future or circumstances different. Spend your time saying, Lord, what is it you have me here right now to do? And he also, Mordecai also counsels Esther wisely not to think that she is somehow indispensable to God's plan. Because you can see that's a trap we could slide into, a faulty way of thinking we could slide into. If we think, well, God cares about me and he has a purpose for my life. And if I don't fulfill my purpose, I, get, I guess God just won't get his job done because here I'm not here to do it. But that's a mistaken way of thinking also. You can err in either extreme. You can think I'm so insignificant, God couldn't possibly do anything with me that matters. Or you could think I'm so significant that God can't possibly get it done without me. And so in the very same verse, at the beginning of verse 14, he says, If thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, Esther, then shall there enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Esther, you and I will die, but God is somehow going to save his people. I can't figure out how because they've said they're going to wipe us all out from the east to the west, from every border of the Persian Empire. But somehow, God is going to fulfill his promises. But you know what? God might have brought you into this circumstance for this very moment. That's a good balance. That's a right balance. I want all my kids to grow up thinking they could be president of the United States one day. I also want all my kids to grow up knowing that if they sweep ditches for a living, dig ditches, I guess, sweep streets, if they do that for a living and they do it to God's honor, that God has a purpose for them in that too. I want them to know God can do great and noble things and delights to do it with the weakest of vessels, but he also insists that we consistently remember we are the weakest of vessels. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says he's done it this way exactly for that reason. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the glory may be of God and not of man. It's because uh, that God intends to display his glory in a way that brings him and him alone the true glory that only he deserves. That he uses frail vessels like you and me. 
And I'd love to think back in my childhood on frail vessels who sat on church pews with broken bodies and sometimes broken minds, broken voices, sometimes couldn't see clearly or think clearly or hear clearly. But you know what they could do? They could serve God clearly. In fact, they served God so clearly, it left a lifelong impression on me and hundreds or thousands of others. And they, being dead, still speak today. And you have saints like that here who carry on legacies like that here as well. So Esther, you've got a job to do, and it's time to saddle up and take your job seriously. Esther was nervous about this because knowing the unalterable law of the Medes and Persians, she said, everybody knows, Mordecai, that if anybody comes into the king's inner court when they haven't been invited, here it is in verse 11, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death. To come in uninvited, this is a king who didn't like to be bothered. Uh, there's one law, you get put to death, unless on the outside chance that this king might hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But she says, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. She's the queen, but even she can't come in to the presence of this ungodly pagan king who is ruling in such an arbitrary way that he operates under a pretense of law and order, but really displays such callous whimsy and arbitrariness that even his own wife is terrified of him. But Mordecai says, Esther, you've got a job to do. So she gets to praying, and she says at the end of this fourth chapter, here's your answer, Mordecai. And sends it back by, to the king's gate by her messenger. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go. I will go. Just like Isaiah said, with trembling, burned lips in front of the altar of a thrice holy God in the year that King Uzziah died, here am I, send me. Esther says, here I am, I will go. So will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. Jesus said, fear not them who are able to destroy the body. Like what? What could be worse than that? If they kill you, that's the end. No, he said, no, 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 no. Fear him, which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. When I was a kid reading that, I thought, ooh, that's the devil. He's pretty scary. Then my pastor, good old brother Zach Guess, who I'm not allowed to mention by name, is, uh, is um, he said, no, that's not the devil. The devil doesn't have that power. God is the one who has that power. The only one we're to fear is God. And if we are truly fearing God, and thank you, Brother Brady, I won't call you by name either, but... Your, one of your elder pastors in this church shared with uh, us recently uh, a, a message on the fear of God that was just glorious and spurred a whole, I, I want to preach a sermon series on the fear of God one of these days, but, but the fear of God, not this trembling, cowardly fear, but not merely even what we frequently refer to as the awe and reverence of being in the presence of an august God but a fear of trembling anticipation, joyful anticipation, that kind of fear. If we have that kind of fear of God, then when we face a trial that seems like certain doom, seems like there's no way this is going to turn out the way we would like it to turn out, you can go into the face of that trial saying with a smile, if I perish, I perish. It's okay. 
That's all they can do to me is kill my body. They can't do a thing to my soul. In other words, they can kill the part of me that lasts a little while. But they can't touch the part of me that lasts forever. It's like saying, I'm going to take the tip of your little toenail. I'm going to hold this, you know, be furious over you and demand that you do something or else I'll chop off the tip of your toenail. Okay. I'm okay with that. I mean, I still have to do the right thing, whatever you're going to do to me. And I don't mean to minimize the suffering that God's saints go through and the loss of loved ones in this life. But friends, any saint who departs this life, Paul said, it's far better. It's not just better. It is far better. If I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had, get this word, commanded him. The last chapter, Mordecai was commanding Esther. Now Esther's sending a command. Of course, she's the queen, but she's still also his surrogate daughter, you might say, sending him a command. And it occurred to me that might also be a good lesson for husbands, wives, parents, and children to keep in mind. Have any of you fathers, maybe none of you dads needed it as much as I did, but I'll tell you, I've been blessed on a few occasions by one of my kids just getting in my face and saying, Dad, that's not right. I've been blessed by that. I can remember a 10-year-old child slipping a note under my door with a verse from Ephesians chapter 5 written on it. I just taught him how to use the concordance that week. He said, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. If you husbands, if you dads are so manly that you can't be told what to do, then you're too manly and you're not godly enough. We need to be ready to stand humbly before God, who is the head of every man. Christ is the head of every man. The head of Christ is God, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we need to bow before our head and acknowledge, I'll at least admit it, I'm not fit for my job, okay? I'm not fit for my job. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a granddad who makes up for the mistakes of my early years of parenting and husbanding. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better employee. I want to be a better friend, a better neighbor. I want to be a better brother in Christ. I want to do all these things. And I admit to you that I don't measure up. But, as the hymn writer said, when his pardon is signed and his peace is procured from that moment his conflict begins... The Christian walk is a warfare. It's a warfare with enemies without, but it's also a warfare with enemies within. And we need to humble ourselves before the hand of Almighty God. The king holds out the scepter in chapter 5. Haman is filled with rage at Mordecai's consistent uh, perceived disrespect and rebellion against authority. Esther has a plan. Maybe it's not a fully formed plan. We don't know in advance how far she's thought all this through. Maybe she's going to read the situation as it goes along. But she says the king generously offers her half the kingdom or anything less than that that she requests. You might think she should just take the money and run. But, you know, as queen, she really was kind of had all the kingdom. So I guess it was a step down. So she said, you know, what I really need is not half the kingdom. What I really need is a dinner with you and one other special guest. And he said, okay, who's, who are you going to invite? She says, how about your nobleman, Haman? So they have a feast, and Esther, presumably reading the situation and determining it's not the right time yet, she's using, exercising discernment and judgment, uh, presumably, apparently guided by Holy Spirit-filled wisdom, 
And, and she, uh, at the end of the dinner, when King says, okay, now you were going to tell me what you wanted, honey. Just ask for it, anything you want, up to half the kingdom. And she says, oh, that's very kind of you, sweetie. What I would like is dinner tomorrow night with you and our special honored guest, Haman. And then, <laughs> don't tell me we can't find God in the book of Esther. On that night, chapter 6, verse 1, the king could not sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles. He'd had all the warm milk he could handle, everything out of his medicine cabinet, the old-fashioned NyQuil, everything that they had available to him. He tried, and he couldn't sleep a wink. And so finally he says to his most boring scribe, bring the most boring book and come read it to me in the most boring voice, and I know I'll finally fall asleep. And so the scribe brings in the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Tiresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, what did we do for this guy? I remember that happening. Esther told me about it, and we took care of the problem. What did we ever do to, to recognize this guy, Mordecai? And they scrambled through the pages, checked the other scrolls, checked the cross-references, checked the index. King, there, we, we didn't do anything. We, we would have written it down if we'd done it. There's nothing in here about that. And, um, you know, I, I'm sorry. And they were probably backing up gently toward the door like they were about to get in trouble. And so the king jumps up out of bed, calls in Haman, the nobleman who's waiting outside, uh, waiting for his turn to, with the king's special morning audience. Haman comes in. And if you can picture this, Haman walks in. The king puts his, puts his arm around his shoulder and he says, Haman, there's somebody really special in this kingdom that just hasn't been honored enough. What should we do for a man like that? And it literally says that Haman, in verse 6, Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? It's got to be me. Who else could he possibly be talking about? So even though he's reached the pinnacle of his career and achieved every goal in his checklist, he pulls out his Christmas list, his birthday list, his, his wish list, Every single thing, and he says, put him on your horse, let him wear your robe, let him borrow your jewelry and, and, and your fancy stuff, and have him ride through the city. And he almost says, let him sit in your throne. And he's like, yeah, no, no, he might not like that. And he, he, he just comes up with this preposterous list of things and gives it to the king. And the king says, that's a great idea. Would you go take care of that for Mordecai? Mordecai, the guy that I can't stand, the guy whose guts I hate. The guy I'm furious with, now I, Haman, have to hold the rope of his horse and march him through the city to whom the man who wouldn't bow down to me, I'm holding the leash of his horse and making everybody bow down to him. Haman was furious. He went home. He was so spitting mad. He said, I've got good news and bad news. And they said, what's the good news? He said, I got invited to a special banquet last night with the queen and the king and just me. I'm that important. And guess what? I got invited tonight to another banquet with the king and the queen and just me because I'm still that important. But guess what else? I can't even enjoy this thing I'm so excited about because this one guy is such a thorn in my side. And his wife, there's a lot of husbands and wives in this book. His wife uh, in verse 13 of chapter 6 tells him, you know, if that's going on with Mordecai, maybe you should rethink your plans. If Mordecai is suddenly being favored by the king in this remarkable way, and, and Haman just stews and simmers and he thinks, I'm going to get him. The law's already been passed. There's nothing they can do about it. 
In just a few months, he'll be dead. All I got to do is bite my tongue, control my blood pressure, and wait until I finally get my revenge because he's consumed with this spirit of bitterness and hatred. Have you ever known a person, or maybe even more pertinent, have you ever been a person so consumed with ambition, so filled with pride, that even when you got what you thought you wanted, it was never enough? You always wanted the next step, and there was always somebody else that needed an extra twist of the knife, somebody else that needed to be stepped on on your way to the top. Well, that was Haman's spirit, but God delivers Mordecai and the Jews in an amazing way. In chapter 7, you're familiar with the story. Um, Esther throws the banquet for the king and Haman one last time and finally asks for her favor. He says, what do you want? Anything up to half the kingdom. In Esther chapter 7, verse 3, the queen answered and said, If I found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, here's what I want. My life. Would it be okay if I live? And my people, would it be okay if we live? She said, somebody has betrayed us. Somebody is plotting to destroy us. Somebody is going to sell us into slavery and take everything we have. The king says in verse 5, who in the world would dare to do such a thing? And she says, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And perhaps... Uh, it's not my favorite, but it's one of my favorite passages in Haman, in, in Haman, in Esther. Then Haman was afraid. <laughs> yeah, I guess he was. Here he is thinking he's at the, uh, at the pinnacle of power and prestige and glory and wealth and influence and might. And suddenly his eyes get as big as saucers. He realizes she must be a Jew. The king storms out into the palace garden in a rage. Haman throws himself on the dining couch, the bed, if you picture like a Roman sofa where you you know eat grapes and cheese and wine all day long. Um, he throws himself upon her, begging for mercy. But you know what? Esther doesn't have to say anything else. That's all she did. Her job was quite simple. It was such a daunting challenge. But she showed a little hospitality. She showed a little womanly love to her husband, her king. And then when the king asked her a question, she told the truth. She said, we're about to be killed. And he says, who's doing it? And she said, him. And the rest of it, God took care of. The king walks back in and sees Haman throwing himself at the queen, begging for mercy. And he says, you're throwing yourself at the queen for other reasons. And before the king even finishes saying it, the guards, who are pretty astute at reading these kinds of situations, they have a bag over Haman's head before he even knows what happened. They're dragging him out on his heels, out of the room. And one of the guards, one of the chamberlains, turns around to the king and says, oh, by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Haman had just built a, a gallows that was uh, 50 cubits high. I'm sorry, I should remember that. He built a gallows that was 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai on. Can you think of any good uses for that? And the king said, go do it. So they went and hanged Haman on his own gallows in his own house. And the king's wrath was pacified. I want you to realize this is still not a good king. This is an average husband who would be furious if somebody disrespected his wife. An average husband who would be furious that he'd been tricked and manipulated into a situation that he didn't intend. 
an average king who doesn't want his, his courtiers mis, uh, manipulating and misrepresenting his intentions like Haman has done to him. But he's still just a wicked old pagan king. And so Esther comes in with one more request. She says, can we do something about this decree that's going to have us all destroyed? And so the king takes off his ring again and gives it to Mordecai and Esther and says, figure it out. They can't change the law. But what they can do is issue a new law which says on the 13th day of the 12th month, Adar, when all the people all over the empire are going to rise up and kill the Jews, that's still going to happen. But right before that happens, all the Jews get to rise up and kill them first. Pretty ingenious method. So in God's providential mercy and grace, this law gets passed. The events unfold exactly as you anticipate. All the enemies of the Jews are destroyed. And by the way, my kids thought this was, this was their favorite verse in the whole book of Esther. The last verse of chapter 8. Uh, let me read the last two verses. Chapter, verse 16 and verse 17 of Esther chapter 8. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews. For the fear of the Jews fell upon them. It's like they had mass proselyte conversions the like of which they'd never seen. Once everybody's like, wait a second, I see the way this is shaping up. I want to be on your side. So, uh, so a bunch of the, the, the bad team comes over and joins the good team. And then they all go out and kill all the bad team. So this is the, and then, then in chapter 9, she, in, she goes to the king one more time says, we just ask one more thing. Please let us set up a perpetual feast to be respected in the law of the land in which the Jewish people can celebrate this deliverance forever. And it was old John Gill who said, um, he said, when people question the inspiration of the book of Esther and they say, we don't find the records to match up with and support this story, where are those old chronicles of the kings of Persia? Well, newsflash, all those old chronicles of all the old kings are almost all gone. If you find a scrap of clay or papyrus or anything remaining to this day, uh, you know, it's worth millions of dollars and sits in museums. They don't have these records from secular history to corroborate them. But John Gill said, you know, perhaps the best authentication from the outside world of the reality of the events of the book of Esther is the fact that there are still Jews celebrating the Feast of Purim today. Thousands of years later, they're still celebrating. They're celebrating that Haman rolled that die on the table because that lot in the Persian tongue was called Pur. And so they called the feast Purim. Like, what are the chances? They have a feast called, what are the chances? And maybe it's time in your home, in your church, to have a celebration that says, what are the chances that we would be here for such a time as this? What are the odds? The odds are a million to one. But as my daughter Adelaide loves to point out, man, I have quoted more human beings in this sermon ever, Brother Brady, because you made me so paranoid about quoting human beings in a sermon. Um, (laughs) My daughter Adelaide loves to say, with God, do you think there's really any probability? Every promise of God in Christ is yea and amen. He's declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. He's the one who says, all my counsel shall stand. And when God says these people will be here and I will watch over them. And when God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And when the Lord Jesus Christ says, none can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Friends, you can take it to the bank. 
God's word in Christ is yea and amen. Like any good pagan king, after such a big party, he raises taxes on everybody. Chapter 10, verse 1. And then the, the, the book concludes with this tiny three-verse three, three chapter, Esther chapter 10, that says all the acts of his power, the king Ahasuerus, and of his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto king Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. We may revisit that verse tomorrow. But tonight, I want you to think about those dusty old scrolls that rotted away in the earth somewhere, where the Persian kings thought they would write down their great exploits and they'd never be forgotten. And the only one that still remains to this day is the one where God wrote down his exploits. God bless you.